Hello, and welcome back to the March Mad Men podcast, your only destination for insanely detailed analysis of the greatest horror movies ever made. We've just completed our thorough but loving autopsy of Bob Clark's 1974 classic, Black Christmas. Tonight, we'll be taking a step back from the slab to put the movie in a larger context, talk big picture, and share whatever tidbits and observations and weird thoughts that we didn't get to in our scene-by-scene analysis of the film. As always, I'm John Evans, and I am joined by my sometimes surly, but always insightful co-hosts, screenwriter Vikram Wheat and producer Rich Eckersley. Gentlemen, I'm really looking forward to our more free-ranging conversation tonight as we wrap up our discussion of the first member of the Fatal Four, which are, of course, the, the finalists in our tournament to determine the best slasher film of all time. Let's start with you, Rich, uh, the man who believes we got at least three-fourths of our finalists wrong. How goes it, good sir? I'm, I'm powering through tonight. I'm a, I'm a little sick. Not not sick like Billy. At least I, I don't I don't believe so. Um, but in the more uh, <clears throat> you know corporeal sense. Um, but you know I'm 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 powering through. You know I wouldn't miss another trip to the Canadian sorority house. You know I wouldn't. <laughs> well, that sounded as creepy as I thought it would, but I'm still embarrassed anyway. Gross, John. <laughs> That's an inside joke. I hope you all listen to our loving autopsy of, <laughs> of Black Christmas. Oh, shit. All right. Well, of course, that brings us to our, our third man here tonight. Vic, glad to see you. Uh, didn't forget we were recording tonight or get bitten by a rattlesnake or have another piece of critical infrastructure like your camera crap out. What's new from the headquarters of Skelton Wheat, Inc.? John, who the fuck are you calling surly, motherfucker? <laughs> that would be you, um, sir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're so genteel. Uh, no, really. How are you, Vic? Yeah. Truly a southern gentleman. That's, that's how I like to think of myself. <laughs> I am I'm very good, man. My kids went back to school today, and I didn't realize until they were gone how much I missed the quiet of the house. I thought you were going to say miss them, but no, you missed the quiet. (laughs) Yeah, no, it did not, did not miss the kids at all. Excited for them. They're excited to be away from me. It's it's the secret to a healthy family. It's just to stay the fuck away from each other as much as possible. Until they bring the the bugs and the, the, the viruses and the diseases home from, from their school. Indeed. Uh, as they are, as they are certain to. I do, John. I, I want to say that in in preparation for this, uh, I listened to the the most recently released first part of our deep dive, and I have to correct myself. Um, I made a reference to Bob Clark as the director of Baby's Day Out, which was a terrible movie with Joe Montana, but that was incorrect. It was Baby Bob Geniuses. Movie was Baby Geniuses. Exactly. And also Baby Geniuses 2 Super Babies, uh, which were also terrible. But yeah, uh, I just wanted to be sure that I I clarified which terrible baby-related movie uh, Bob Clark did in the the twilight of his career. It 
Vic, if it makes you feel any better, I also made a mistake in that same episode. And that was when you said that Bob Clark had directed Baby's Day Out. I knew that that was not true. And I did not call you out and publicly shame you. That's a friend. That's a friend. I guess guess we'll just have to take your word for that then, Rich, since (laughs) since you didn't say it. I believe now, uh, just to put myself on the spot, I believe Baby's Day Out was a John Hughes movie, wasn't it? Jesus yeah, that fuck. sounds right. That sounds right. I'm going to look that up because the, the, the whole babies thing is just like the death of everyone's career. Well, I think that literally was the death of his career, actually. So that's poignant. I'm pretty sure that was his last film. Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, but not no. uh, not because of the movie. I mean, um, I, I think <laughs> that that might be a good, uh, horrible, um, I'm not sure, good or horrible segue but I did want to mention, because we didn't, I don't think we really discussed it last time, what happened was Bob Clark was driving um, on the PCH, uh, I think it was late at night or early in the morning, and um, a man apparently driving under the influence hit his car, and both Bob Clark and his son, who was about in his early 20s, who's a musician and an actor, both died. So pretty tragic death for a guy that was really still wanting to keep making movies and full of life and enjoying his life and had a lot more to do and enjoy. Yeah, really an unfortunate early passing for Bob Clark. So uh, wanted to get that in there somewhere. And um, I guess that's as good a place as any. Way to bring it all down, John. Yeah, geez, John, we were trying to enjoy the... (laughs) the hysterical event of John Hughes' death and you had to go to ruin it. <laughs> uh, also, just to be clear, I did look it up. John Hughes wrote Baby's Day Out, so kudos yeah, on that. I saw, I, saw that, I saw that as well. So I was close, but not quite there. Yeah. We, we don't want to be accurate on this podcast because you know, then maybe somebody will get back to us and say, hey, you were wrong about this, and we'll know that people are listening. So that's why we do it, see? We're, we're one step ahead. <laughs> yes, we're trolling our own listeners. Yeah. <laughs> so I I really thought that Deborah Winger was great in Black Christmas. I mean, what a performance by a young Deborah Winger. <laughs> you know, speaking of Marco Kidder, I didn't realize I was actually looking at the Wikipedia before we came on, and she won a Canadian film award for this movie, best performance by a lead actress. Man, the Canadians were in the tank for Margot Kidder back then. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think calling her a lead actress in this film is a bit of a stretch, but I'm happy for her. Yeah. I'm not sure that Olivia Hussey would agree with that statement, but uh, the hardware went to Margot Kidder in what we all agree. Again, if you haven't listened to our show last time, by, my God, go do it. But if you haven't, we all agree it was a, a pretty luminous performance by Margot Kidder. It also got a, um, a win for uh, Best Sound Editing in a Feature at the Canadian Film Awards, in addition to Margot's win. And it was nominated for Best Feature Film as well at the Canadian Film Awards. So, doubling back, I think uh, this would be a good place you know, for our kind of high-level thoughts be sure to trip over each other uh as you speak but uh you know does anybody want to lead off with you know we've been away from it for a while what what's your overview of this movie now that 
the uh, the implements that we used in the autopsy have been rinsed off and put back in their cases. We've got the cold light of dawn uh, to reflect on on the autopsy of Black Christmas. If I may, I want to open with something that I, I think we had talked about sort of saving for the award show. And as I was starting to dig into this, I sort of thought this might be more interesting to have as a backdrop as we go through all of the autopsies that we're going to do, uh, in large part because we talked about the Again, we arrived at this conclusion that these movies were all made within six, eight years of each other. Uh, and, and so what is the, the sort of thought process and the reasoning behind that? And I think Black Christmas, as really the first of them, uh, it's probably relevant to the discussion. And that is the, the truly remarkable surge in serial killers between the late 60s and the late 80s. And that that became such a theme of daily life. And yet we don't think of it like that, except now we look back on these movies and we're like, geez, like we should make all these slasher movies about maniacs killing people. I wonder what that I wonder what that was all about. So one of the things that I found was that Black Christmas was allegedly inspired uh, by some real life murders that occurred in Montreal, Quebec, in Canada during the holiday season. This is most likely based on Canadian serial killer named Wayne Bodden, who killed three women in Montreal between 69 and 1970 and earned the nickname the Vampire Rapist for biting the breasts of his victim. He received four life sentences for those murders. Bob Clark and his co-writer, who's a guy who's, I just, you can't make this up. His name is A. Roy Moore. Uh, Roy Moore being the, I believe, the conservative <laughs> <laughs> that ran for the Senate in uh, Alabama and was accused of terrible things, let's say. Uh, to be fair, there's more than one man named Roy Moore in Alabama. Uh, let's, that's you know. fair. But what about, <laughs> what about in Canada? Anyways, they combined sort of this idea of the Wayne Bodden story with the babysitter and the man upstairs urban legend, which was itself based on the murder of a 13-year-old babysitter named Jeanette Coleman in Alabama. No, I take that back. It was in Missouri uh, in 1950. More even than sort of the haunted house, the supernatural, a lot of what you deal with in horror, I think what we're going to find is that the, the slasher films really do spring from uh, this, this reality of what the world was like at this time. If I can continue this rant for just a few more minutes, I promise I'll, I'll wrap it up. Your but, Honor, he's leading the witness. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to throw out a couple of statistics that I found because I, I, I think some of this is fascinating and, again, really does inform this time period in these movies and really uh, especially this movie because it has such clear ties uh, to, to real-world events. Out of all the serial killers that we've documented in the United States, nearly 80% of them were active between 1970 and 1999. Crime historian Harold Schechter, who is very famous and a wonderful writer, uh, refers to the 1970s and the 1980s as the golden age of serial murder. Statistics indicate that an estimated 770 serial killers were active in the 1980s compared to roughly 30 in 2015. In 1987, the only year I could find a figure for this, 
189 people in the U.S. died at the hands of a serial killer. Again, we're talking about all the serial killers we know, right? John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, who broke into a sorority house and murdered two women in 1978. Uh, Son of Sam, the Hillside Strangler. We know all them. But this is all the other shit that was going on, okay? So just listen to this. The Alphabet murders, three victims. The Ann Arbor Hospital murders, ten victims. The Lover Lane murders, three victims. The Bag murders, six victims. The Atlanta Child murders, 28 victims. The Connecticut River Valley killer, seven victims. The Denver Prostitute killers, 17 victims. The Doodler, 14 <laughs> victims. Um, which is... <laughs> A comical name, but but killed 14 gay men. So that's still awful. And, f- and he left caricatures of them on their clothing. Like. Exactly, right? <laughs> uh, the flat tire murders, 12 victims. And literally, like, dozens more. Like, when I started going into this, I couldn't believe how prevalent this was everywhere. And here's how prevalent it was. And I knew this. The Colonial Parkway killer had eight victims in my hometown of Williamsburg, Virginia, between 1986 and 1989 when I was living there. Really, like, we don't talk about this enough. (laughs) There was just serial killers everywhere for 20 years. And so it's no wonder that this is the era when we made the greatest movies about maniacs killing people at random and the reason why those movies have started to ring hollow the further we get from that period i think that these movies really do reflect something that was going on in our cultural consciousness it begs the question of course well why did it stop right the most you know screamingly obvious elephant in the room thing that you would say to that is well we have something new now and it involves guns. So then the question becomes, are these the same people, maybe younger, maybe not, but that would have potentially been serial killers back then, but instead they just pick up an AR-15? I don't know. I mean, there, it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of the, you know, we, we, we've mythologized with shows like uh, Manhunter or... Is that what it was called? Mindhunter. 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 Thank you. Um, we've mythologized the mind of serial killers, but they do tend to have these lurid, mostly sexually based kind of motivations and gratification that isn't, at least on the surface, consistent with what we find with our shooters today, which is the plague of, of modern times. So I would almost posit that this is those guys are just simply even more underground the potential serial killers and it's purely because of the advances in forensic science and the fact that you cannot really get away with being a serial killer anymore there's just too many forms of evidence the labs are too good and there's so many, the surveillance, like there's just a million things that technology allows us to do to catch ser- serial killers that w- wasn't the case back then. So like you, you, you sprung this on me. I had no idea we were going to talk about this, but I, I will just land on the potential serial killers that we have now know that they won't get away with it. I don't know what they're doing instead. 
And our problem with guns and those guys is completely separate. Rich, what are your thoughts of all of this? Does that, does that make sense? Do you want to add anything to that? I think most of the serial killer or would be your serial killers are on Reddit now instead. <laughs> but this definitely seems like a topic that is better for someone more qualified. But um, sure. Oh, I'd Vic. Argue that probably, I, I think that probably the answer here is that while there's bound to be some sort of overlap in profile that, yes, I, I think probably the kind of person who becomes a serial killer and the kind of person who becomes like a mass shooter it is probably a slightly different personality type, but as you're pointing out, like basically like the societal means kind of give them um, different types of access depending on what time period they're, they're living in. What I think is interesting in that, in that what you're what, kind of what you're sort of raising, and I do want to kind of go back to Vic's historical point is that the thing that that makes me think is that if, if horror films goals are to tap into our sort of primal fears and mix them with with fantasy in a way that we can sort of find them digestible. It's interesting that horror found a way to make, you know, the Golden State Killer or the Hillside Strangler feel like something that we could actually go and enjoy for entertainment through the lens of slasher films. Has it found a way to do the same thing with the types of killers that we're talking about in today's era? You know, if anything, I'd argue that what it's really managed to find an avenue with is the terror of the Internet and the anonymity of uh, people who, you know, sort of like bully and harass and, and do damage that way. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, I don't feel like there have been any films that really did anything other than try to like represent the very real, you know, like threat that like surrounds like shootings. But I, I can't think of anything to try to like fictionalize it in a way that was meant more for entertainment in the way that like black Christmas is doing with serial killers. That's a very interesting point. And I just want to say, I, I wondered like, when would it, when will we get the nine 11 thriller, where we know the building's going down and everybody's going to die, but there's like kind of a conventional action movie built into that. And maybe, I guess maybe it wouldn't be com- entirely conventional because like nobody really got out of that situation except, you know, really early on or something. But like, when did it, when, when, when would 9-11 just become like a World War II movie, Right. And I think we'll probably have that before this because one of the things in Hollywood, as we all know, has always been as soon as something happens, well, that resets the clock on. So like, okay, we had lots of terrorist attack movies and stuff, but like if we had another 9-11 type situation, any fighting terrorists trying to blow up the White House kind of movies would be shelved immediately, right? We all know that. And so I think part of the issue with this that we're talking about, the, the mass shooters, the active shooters, is that they're gonna have, we're going to have one tomorrow, next week, three of them. So it's always going to be too soon. You can't turn it into escapist entertainment. And I sure hope we all live to see the day when we do turn it into escapist entertainment, because that'll mean it's not happening anymore. But John... Uh, 
-hmm. even though it was not a central point, I will point out that you and I just did a uh, a whole podcast on Texas Chainsaw 2022, mm -hmm. in which the the backstory of the main character was that she had, was a survivor of a school shooting. Now, again, that's not the same as turning it into no. fodder for a horror film, no. but only that we're acknowledging, I think that we live in a world of mass murder while we're making movies about mass murder. I don't know. I, 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 I feel like Rich's point would be like, we have a new, the new quote unquote slasher movie would be a school shooting. And yeah. it's like really fun. And everybody in high school goes to see the movie on Friday and they have a blast. And we're years and years away from that. Not yeah. like the thing in Texas Chainsaw is like, you know, Vietnam back in the day. It's the trauma that fucked up somebody that we all can kind of relate to because of a lot. A lot of people suffered that trauma. Yeah, no, I agree. I was looking at Wikipedia and there was a situation in 78. You mentioned, Vic, the Ted Bundy murders. What we ended up finding out would be Ted Bundy as the perpetrator but there was supposed to be a 1978 TV premiere of Black Christmas, and the thing in Florida had just happened in a sorority house, which we ultimately found out was Ted Bundy. There was a controversy about whether they should air the movie or not, and NBC gave Florida, Georgia, and Alabama affiliates the option of showing Doc Savage, the man of bronze, in place of what they were calling uh, Black Christmas at the time, Stranger in the House. So e even then, this sort of phenomena of things being ripped from the headlines or hitting too close to home and how we handle it in terms of entertainment, Black Christmas had its uh, share of that. I wonder what NBC would have had instead of pig cunt. <laughs> Dirty bird. Well, this was... <laughs> In fairness, this was a local station in Florida, so they probably would have just like let anything go. <laughs> That's yeah. fair. They would have changed it to something worse. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I think a, a lot of people have ventured the same thing that you said about the increases in in technology that law enforcement uses, and that that sort of uh, pushed back the number of serial killers and that sort of thing. But one of the theories, I don't even know if this is true. I just think it's fascinating is that some people attribute the, the, you can, you can trace the rise and fall of environmental lead almost exactly to the rise and fall of serial killings in the United States. That because we used to have leaded gas and lead and paint and everything else that there was, there was, sort of chemical damage being done to people's brains and maybe that's what it was i mean we'll never i don't i don't think we'll ever know but I, that's the one thing that i've seen that i've just thought is is the the strangest and most interesting explanation for it when i think of these guys i think of stuff like they're into feet and panties and tying women up and shit and i'm like lead it would make you into that? I, I don't know, man. <laughs> well, I think I think that what the what lead would do is damage the part of your brain 
that keeps you oh. from acting on those fantasies. Oh, totally. Okay. Yes. Understood. That makes a lot more sense. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong. I don't it, know. It doesn't create the, the sexual fetish. It just takes the, the governor the off condition. the, uh, yeah. yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Now, now there's no brakes on this, on this car of pathology. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, Rich, what? did you bring anything to the table here you wanted to throw out? <laughs> Not to follow up that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, you, you, you already herded me into talking about Bob Clark's tragic death on the PCH. What, what could be more awkward for you than that was for me? <laughs> I'm just here to guide you all into traffic tonight. Um, <laughs> so I, so I murdered a, uh, I murdered a girl in a sorority house in 1982. I don't want to talk about it, but boy, it just seems like we landed here, you know. That's how we got picked up on that true crime podcast. The people will be say, will say, look at that clip of Vikram Wheat saying that. <laughs> Honestly, it's a little scary. I mean, when you see some of those, what do you call it? The amateur crime crime solvers in the pieces that of the puzzle that they put together and point fingers at people for crimes that everyone wants to solve. All right, uh, I just want to be, I just want to be clear to our listeners. I was two <laughs> in 1982. Okay. Were you really Vic? Very <laughs> unlikely that I was murdering sorority girls. You were precocious as a child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I did the original introduction, and as I mentioned at the time, I mean that was the that was the first time I had seen this film, and I have had a lifetime of horror movie hype surrounding it. In fact, I think that this last viewing is only the third time that I've seen the film. I don't have any deep dives to sort of add on top of on top of Vix. I will say that for me, like the the movies maybe had a slightly diminishing quality with each viewing. I really like it, but I think that like the, the first time I saw it, it, it really struck me. And the, the more we've gone back to it, I find it interesting as sort of like a like a cultural and historic curio, like something that's definitely like a, a great shoulder season movie to put on, um, you know, after Thanksgiving dinner, of course, followed by by uh, Blood Rage and potentially uh, Anna and the Apocalypse. But, um, you know, I could see wedging it in there before you get like firmly into the Christmas season. But, you know, as, as we've gone deeper into it, like I'm not sure how far, like compared to the other four movies that we had, how personally deep this one digs for me um and so i'm interested in hearing like a little more of y'all's like, opinions and like i don't know i, I kind of want to be convinced a little bit i guess mm-hmm. what's interesting what you just said elvis presley apparently watched this movie every christmas and then at first i was like wow what a wonderful tradition i'm like wait he died in 77 so for three years, Elvis Presley watched this movie every Christmas season. <laughs> um, but apparently his family, like Priscilla, his kids and everything, like they carried on the tradition. Obviously, Quentin Tarantino, you know, no surprise there if I told you that. But uh, what was funny is that Lynn Griffin, who played Claire, no, it was Olivia Hussey. She met Steve Martin. And he said, like, oh, one of your movies is is one of my favorite movies of all time. And she was like, oh, Romeo and Juliet. And he's like, no, it's Black Christmas. I've seen it 27 times. So Steve Martin loves it. I rest my case, Your Honor. <laughs> like, Steve Martin's like, it's hysterical. It's the funniest Christmas movie I've ever seen. 
Well, that, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was an element. I mean, I think as we discussed, this movie functions extraordinarily well as a comedy. And I'll, I'll kind of, that is part of my narrative that I want to share about my relationship with the movie. I guess that's a good segue. Yeah, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but like you, Rich, it did blow me away the first time. And it's always stuck with me as just like such a well-executed and interesting and ahead of its time and effective movie and a truly disturbing movie. I've revisited 10 might be a high number, but I've seen it probably a minimum of seven or eight times now when you count the, well, no, yeah, we've, we've only seen it once for this podcast. I skipped it in the first round. It's always on my list. You know, whenever I'm compiling my top 50 favorite horror movies of all time. No, I don't think it ever strayed close to my top 10, maybe not even my top 20, but right in that range, it would start to come up as something that I, I weigh. Conversely to you, Rich, I think it's only gained in my esteem in this process. Not to say that I come out of this watch being like, oh, those other movies are toast or something like that. I would be a little surprised. No, I would be a lot surprised. I got, you guys know I've been proclaiming from the beginning of this process that for me, yeah, spoiler, if something other than the Texas Chainsaw Massacre gets my vote for the greatest slasher movie of all time, the process will have surprised me. I am open to that. But nothing about this watch of Black Christmas convinced me TCM's in trouble, man, or something like that. But I love the movie. I think it's even more of a blueprint for the slasher subgenre than Psycho was 14 years earlier. I think Toby Hooper's movie is more influential in the subgenre. came out the same year, 1974. But, for example, John Carpenter's Halloween specifically shares more DNA with Black Christmas than it does with Texas Chainsaw, as the story I told in our last episode should indicate. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, for the love of God, go back and listen to it. So Black Christmas may not have the boobs, the gory kills, the outlandish implements of murder, the masked behemoth, these sort of tropes that we associate with slasher movies now, but it does feature the relatable, realistic female characters, the twisted pathology of its killer, deeper psychological pathology, a master-level stalking aspect to the killer, stylistic devices such as the POV camera, which lends itself to the stalking so well. These are things that came to be essential elements of the best slasher movies. This is not a dead teenager's movie as Roger Ebert would at times pejoratively classify the genre, even if, yes, you might yell at the protagonist not to pick up that fireplace implement and go upstairs after the cops begged her to just get out of the house. <laughs> this is a crowd pleaser that perfectly intersperses comic relief moments with its shock and suspense, building to an unforgettable ending that in my book is both subtly open-ended and devastatingly dark at the same time. Sure, we don't have any hockey masks or finger knives or skinny dipping or warrior women whipping psycho killer ass. Admittedly, Black Christmas is more a complex cabernet 
than a destroy your brain cells moonshine, but it will definitely mess you up. It's my favorite John Saxon movie and a masterclass in horror entertainment. That is all. I want to hear that rundown of hockey masks, finger knives. What was it? Warrior women? Skin, skinny dipping. Yep. Skinny dipping. <laughs> and hey, let's go fun. swimming. But we don't have our swimsuits. <laughs> I do like your it's John Slasher bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I agree with you. I think if, if anything, my, my, the, probably the issue that I take with it is actually just simply like a pacing issue. Like the, this film, it's a little slow. And there's a lot of like meandering character scenes that kind of like don't necessarily go anywhere. And, and that's not even like a, that's not even a big complaint. I'm just saying like in the company that it is keeping, is this movie the kind of like, how often can you watch this movie? And, I, and I'd say like it, it becomes like a, a little more tedious maybe than some of the others because it's just a little more loose with its, with its pacing and its, its highs are a little further apart. Um, but that, that's a, look, that, that's a honestly a minor complaint for like the sort of like the caliber of uh, a film that we're talking about in this context. I can't really uh, argue with you. Um, Thank you. I, <laughs> <laughs> I want to read from a, uh, this is just a quote that I found in a, a thrill list article about Black Christmas that I do think speaks to a lot of what John is saying, which is, uh, quote, there's no doubting that Black Christmas had all the advantages of being the first of its kind. The film stands as the mother of the modern slasher. It was able to make its own rules and subsequently created a template for the films that came after. Nowadays, we approach slasher films with full knowledge of their formulas, getting our thrills from imaginative kills and watching people fight for their lives. But when Black Christmas was released in 1974, these, convention, these conventions were still new and fresh. And I think that is a, a big part of it. But I found, I'm curious if you found this. As I was poking around trying to find stuff, scholarly articles, people writing about this film in its place in slasher film history. There is almost not a single article that doesn't talk about this film and not mention its relationship to Halloween. Hmm. Like they are, it's a, it's a binary star system where those two movies are sort of circling each other uh, between 1970, 74 and 78. Did you guys, did you guys find that? Well, I didn't do the exact research you did because on th on this one I really leaned into this Blu-ray that I had, like, and I really just wanted the the interviews and the making of stuff. So I honestly didn't do that much study of uh, of opinions. But what you're saying makes perfect sense to me in the context of what I said earlier which is I think that the constellation of female characters in this movie and the constellation of female characters in Halloween are the most on par. Like, yeah, you can, you know, we, I think we, we paid some tribute to Slumber Party Massacre for its more realistic, its somewhat dedicated interest in the dynamics of these girls uh, in their friendships and, and 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 you know like they're talking about the dodgers and it's not just about ben tramer or shit like that but i think that the real 
connective tissue between Black Christmas and Halloween, like one of the main things is that the dynamic that Laurie and Annie and the PJ Souls character, like their sort of chemistry felt like real people as as Deborah Hill brought to the table with her script. And not that this movie goes that far into that, but I mean, like Barb is such a fucking character, Margot Kidder in this film. And not just trying to be hot or, you know, like not, not thinking romantically or not even thinking seriously. And the relationship between Andrea Martin and Jess is, is, is nice. And there's just a lot of things that uh, most slasher movies, maybe they pay lip service to, but I think those things make Halloween and black Christmas stand out at near the top of the pack in that area. Even more than the Haunted House film, I feel like a lot of what we've talked about throughout this process has been the evolution of this film that ultimately landed on a formula and then who executed the formula the best. And so you you, you look at Black Christmas as the sort of middle stepping stone between Psycho and, to a lesser extent, Peeping Tom to Black Christmas and then to Halloween, which really laid the template, which Friday the 13th probably perfected, right? And so it's interesting that we keep having this discussion about the evolution of the slasher film, and yet Texas Chainsaw Massacre happened at the same time, and it seems to exist outside of that discussion. I don't think that you will find... The, the same number of articles connecting Texas Chainsaw to Halloween as you do uh, Black Christmas and Halloween. And so I don't know if that's an advantage or a disadvantage to Halloween or to uh, Black Christmas in terms of this process, but that was that was just sort of what struck me is that this has a lot of our discussion has been about the evolution and the landing place and. Uh, Texas Chainsaw doesn't doesn't seem to hold the role in that process that Black Christmas does. I don't want to talk about Texas Chainsaw tonight, but this crossed my mind when I was preparing my notes this evening when I was thinking about those two films. And to me, Texas Chainsaw is far more obviously, I don't care whether people are seeing it or not, they should be, it's far more the paradigm of uh, Friday the 13th or Halloween in some ways, definitely Friday the 13th in the sense that we have the big galoot in Texas Chainsaw, like Leatherface is far more analogous with the prototype that we associate with our, our slasher antagonists than, than Billy is. And while we have some prototypical final girl heroism from Sally uh, at least in in her you know dogged determination to survive in Texas Chainsaw, I think that for the most part the characters Franklin and really everybody else other than Sally, right? You're not you're not broken up about them dying. They don't have like great relationships or something like that. And so I and I think it kind of the movie follows the prototypical keep saying that word but you know the the standard formula of you follow this person for a little while they get killed 
You follow this person, they're exploring around, they're calling people's names, they're looking for somebody, they get killed. Black Christmas, you know, doesn't really, even though we do have a series of murders, like I don't know how you get around that because it's a chronology, but I think the real template for what we think of as a slasher movie's structure and dynamics is more intrinsic and characteristic in Texas Chainsaw than in Black Christmas. So I think that's like a big plus in the column for Texas Chainsaw because it is the same year. And yeah, like most slasher movies look a hell of a lot more like Texas Chainsaw than they look like Peeping Tom or Psycho or even Black Christmas, really. Because Black Christmas, there's one maybe one and a half kills in the movie, right? Well, okay, two, three. Because you have the hook and the smothering and Barb. Okay, so you got three. But th- this movie is just not really about that. I want to make one more observation before we move away from the, from the Texas Chainsaw comparisons, which we said we're not going to do. Yeah. But hey, we're here. Um <laughs> One thing that I thought was interesting is, like, in my research for this film, it didn't come up a lot, but I did see this film, Black Christmas, showing up being described as a home invasion movie in a few different places. And I I think that that's a fair statement. It is. Especially, like, like, looking for what it was at the time. Conversely, and I'm borrowing this observation, actually, from the Dead Meat podcast, which I really, for some reason, I, I found this very insightful, is that, if you look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's also a home invasion movie if you're seeing it from Leatherface's perspective. That's right. That is good. And like, I think that that's a central difference. Like when you're talking about Halloween, you're talking about a killer who is coming out into the homes where and pursuing people where they live versus Texas Chainsaw is about, it's almost like a haunted house, right? It's like they went into that house. They ended up there. And they sort of like brought themselves to that. And then, and then they were trapped essentially. And I'd say like to that end, this and Halloween, I think have more in common on that basis. And just the nature of like the stalking that happens in black Christmas has much more in common with what I associate with Jason or, uh, Michael Myers, certainly Freddie less so, but, um, well, even though Michael Myers and Billy like could not be more different, right? Because Billy is tormented and Michael Myers obviously has no inner conflict or doubt or anything like that. I mean that in terms of like the brooding nature, the silent stalking and slinking around. And this kind of dude's like not silent. Being in the shadows. Yes. And, what's that? I wouldn't call Billy silent because the Billy's calls, not, the Billy's phone not, calls. Billy's not silent on the phone. Right. But in any sort of like any context where he's appearing in person... You know, I don't think you like. I think there's a there's what like we hear him like kind of like murmuring to himself behind the door once, I believe, right? But otherwise, like we never see Billy and hear him talk at the same time. He talks. Um, to, he talks to Barb as well before he stabs her. Actually, he talks to everyone he kills. He calls them all Agnes. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, I just want to point out before we get too far from this that that Rich, our resident Texan has looked at Texas Chainsaw Massacre and declared that those dirty hippies had it coming. (laughs) Stand your ground, man. (laughs) 
No, I mean, I think that is a great point, but it's also, I think, maybe it's closer to 50-50, but a ton of slasher movies are about the people go somewhere they shouldn't go. And if they didn't go there, they'd be fine. You know, I think probably even less than half of slasher movies are about the killer coming to you. Most of the time, even though we didn't consider it a slasher movie, and I stand by that, but you know, wrong turn or, or whatever you go somewhere, you're in the middle of nowhere. Your car breaks down. Okay. Movies we did have house of wax. Um, actually, uh, stage fright, they come, he comes to them pretty much kind of, but there's a lot of ambiguity about the locations. Uh, it would be an interesting exercise just to look at all these movies and how many are, are the, the visitor coming versus the victims being the visitors. Uh, It's an interesting question to ask. John argues that all dirty hippies have it coming. Got it. (laughs) Even in their homes. Yeah, no. (laughs) Even in their homes. Well, I I mean, part of – I hadn't actually thought of the home invasion side of it, but something that did occur to me that I wanted to mention is the fact that Black Christmas does feel like an amalgam of a lot of what we've talked about. You have these long tracking shots that are the killer's POV that feel like the early Giallo films, the Dario Argentos and that sort of thing. You have the psychological complexity, the sort of armchair psychiatry that we get in uh, in Psycho. Or Tenebra. Um, or Tenebra, exactly. All the swirling influences sort of came together in this, and you get pieces of it, uh, of all of them. I think also you have all of this violence directed at a group of young women, which I think is really one of the the most prevalent tropes of the genre. So it it is. It's, It's, again, just a lot of what we've been talking about does come together here in this one uh, one spot. The Strangers and Haute Tension also are big on their home invasions. Indeed. Except for High Tension because it's not a home invasion because she's already there. But it's fine. <laughs> no, she has to go out and get that truck, which really yes. exists, <laughs> and bring it back there. <laughs> she has to go out. Borrow that truck from the Jeepers Creepers guy and then come back. (laughs) Yep. Yep. So, yeah, let's get back to the movie specifically a little bit more. I mean, I think there's a few more things that uh, would be interesting to talk about or at least throw out there and see if it, it sparks any conversation. The movie was based on a series of murders that happened in the Westmont neighborhood of Montreal, Quebec. The great A. Roy Moore uh, wrote this screenplay. It was, I think it was originally called, uh, Wikipedia said it was called Stop Me, but I think that was the name that Bob Clark ended up changing it to. It was called something like The Babysitter, again, like literally, uh, when it started. But then uh, Bob and the producers, you know, started making changes to the script and they they aged up the characters. They they put it on a university campus instead of uh, with presumably high school kids. And uh, I think you know Rich, I'm sure mentioned the box office when he introduced it five years ago. But uh, <laughs> the movie was made for six hundred twenty thousand, 
and it it got off to a good start in Canada, but Warner Brothers made the decision, I don't think you talked about this, Rich, to change the name, because at that time, Black Christmas might be just assumed to be a black exploitation film, because every movie, every black exploitation film just put black in front of another title, and that's how you kind of knew, all right, so that must be a Pam Greer movie or something. And they were terrified that the movie would cause confusion. So they changed it to Silent Night, Evil Night. And whether it's the title or something else, other marketing gaffes, the movie was not as successful in the States. And there there was at least one release where the opening titles read, because I saw this on the uh, special features, the, the, the title card is Stranger in the House or Black Christmas hyphen Silent Night, Evil Night. <laughs> wow, that, that's a mouthful, man. <laughs> but even with all of these gaffes and, and whatnot, uh, it was the third highest growing Canadian film of all time, albeit at $2 million, but it made over $4 million worldwide, which... Um, you know, on, on, on a, about a half a million dollar budget was, was pretty solid. And I wanted to say that obviously I think we touched on this before, but Bob Clark, you know, brought the, the Barb character, the house mother, Mrs. Mack, all of the humor that is such a defining characteristic of the film. He had total creative control. Nobody was messing with him with this movie. No one interfered from a, you know, a studio or producer level, and he wanted to make a realistic, low-key horror movie that relied on good, well-grounded acting, a few novel cinematic ideas as far as techniques and whatnot. And he really liked the juxtaposition of the, as he put it, jolliest of seasons with this dark imagery, which I, I do think we, we commented on, on last time. Uh, any thoughts on that? John, I just want to say that you're. I had I had no idea about the studio fears of confusion with black exploitation films, but what that immediately made me think of is a fabulous joke on The Simpsons where Homer's watching television, and the television says, "Coming up next, Blackula, then Blackenstein, followed by the Blunt Black of Blotra Blom." <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> And Homer goes, ooh, funky. <laughs> that's great. You got to love The Simpsons. Yeah. And, that's, and, that's, and that is why the studio was like, Black Christmas, that's not going to go over well. Yeah, no, uh, that, that makes sense. While we're talking about the script, it was written longhand, apparently, which is kind of mind-blowing in, in today's day and age. But I found some like little screen cap of, of, of a typed page. And just for the hell of it, I wanted to read this because, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. But it does break one of the cardinal rules of screenwriting as far as like what you should do with a spec. And I want to see if either of you guys um, comment on that or, or notice it. Okay. Interior, attic, night. Through a wide-angle lens, the subjective camera rummages around the attic. There is the sound of heavy breathing. Rags and half-rotted food and old clothes form a bed in one corner of the moonlit attic, and it appears someone has been living here. It bears an unnerving resemblance to a spider's lair. 
There are dusty old toys in the attic, and as the camera passes, a rocking horse squeaks and swings back and forth. John, I, I believe the cardinal rule that's broken is that it's, it's written longhand. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good. Yes. No, no, this one was typed. By the way, I love the spider's lair. Like, that's a great little, that's so evocative. Well, no, he's um, he's calling uh, obviously, shots. Obviously, yeah. it's the wide angle yeah. lens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If if you got a submission for a for a script in a contest, John, that was just entirely written longhand, like I feel like I would give them extra consideration just for effort. I mean, I would be like, I am in the hands of a madman or madwoman. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They knew they had good camera geography with this location because the staircase comes right down towards the front entrance. So they could shoot freely and openly from the room, like the living room or the foyer or whatever, like right inside the front door. And you could see people coming down the stairs. You could also, on the flip side, shoot from the top of the stairs from someone's POV and watch the girls on the phone, which was located, you know, right there at the, on the sort of landing of the stairs. And Hussey said that the house was much smaller and less threatening, both inside and out, than Bob Clark got it to look on screen, which is, I think, always a, a good sign uh, of what a filmmaker's bringing to the table. We've mm-hmm. all talked about the fact that I think one of the important factors in slasher films in general is understanding the geography of your location. And that whenever the, the characters and the camera and we as the viewer feel lost, the tension gets lost. And so it is one of those like nuts and bolts things that you have to have a good director. You have to have a good DP. You have to have a good set designer that can lay everything out in a way that makes sense so that we know what's going on because it's so much fucking scarier when we know where the entrances to the attic are, where the killer is in relation to the people, you know, the killer's upstairs, the people are downstairs. That kind of stuff all makes a difference. Yeah, so much of this subgenre is just is just cat and mouse, right? Exactly. Um, across the board. So it's like you have to know to what degrees your is your character in danger, you know. Um, and obviously, like, the filmmaker is always kind of in control of, like, how much you know that they're in danger. But the geography is a big part of that. Well, yeah, you should feel an inherent suspense because you have information that the characters don't oftentimes about the whereabouts of the killer and that creates an inherent suspense because hopefully you're rooting for the the characters and you are hoping that their lack of knowledge that that you have will not be their their undoing that they will not be too vulnerable and um yeah it's an uneasy feeling but it's also you know part of the thrill of these of these films of this genre and even in Super Babies 2, I think you feel this when John Voight and Scott Bayo are trying to stop the Super Babies. 
I love that you must um, have that IMDb page up or something to know that. I, I just clicked over to it to, to find out that, my God, like the cast just couldn't be any better. Scott Bayo. Wow. <laughs> I just think I one of the things that I have gained through this process is a real appreciation of Bob Clark. I mean, he really did bring a lot to the table in this film. And the fact that even if it made $4 million at the time, it obviously continued to persist on, on home video and, and television and everywhere else to the degree that it's been remade twice. So it's mm-hmm. got a following. Like people know what a good film this is. And the fact that those remakes have failed speaks to the fact that he really did his homework. He did a good job on this. Yeah, one of the things that all the cast members, you know, say all, all over and over is just that they're amazed at how many people bring them Black Christmas merch and stuff like that to autograph. And, you know, they email them and it's, you know, we're not the only people who think this is worth talking about. And we hope some of those people will listen to us talk about it. So let's move on. Margot Kidder was one of those people who was kind of blown away that this little movie she made early in her career uh, kept coming up with people that she would encounter through the rest of her life. I'm going to give you a few things from Olivia Hussey about Margot and mostly things that Margot said. But uh, Olivia Hussey said that Margot was very quiet and kept to herself on the set. And Margot said that Hussey was very serious and very straight and that she, Margot, was usually hungover from booze or pot or both and tried to make Hussey laugh without a lot of uh, success. Meanwhile, Andrea Martin, who I, I know Vic would like to talk about, but I'm not going to give him the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> she cracked everyone up. And uh, Margot said that she and Andrea Martin were the, the set goofballs. And one of the things like sort of points of contention or, or, you know, who knows where the truth really is, was how drunk or not drunk Margot was during actual scenes. And at least for her turtle screwing for two days speech, Bob Clark was on the record saying that Margot was imbibing to get in character. But Margot said she only drank after shooting. She insisted that even back then, and a lot of her comments uh, were how much cooler and less uptight everyone was back then, she still said you knew you wouldn't, you shouldn't drink on set. So I guess maybe it's a moot point because if she's drinking before she gets there, you know, she that's okay by in her book and she would seem drunk when she was working so that would be what bob clark would observe i don't know but margot said that she's attracted to she was really drawn to playing the wild and eccentric characters like barb instead of dull good girl kind of lead roles and that makes a lot of sense she also noted that bob clark let her loose he wrote the fellatio scene but there was some other point, and she didn't remember exactly what, but that Bob had to rein her in at another point because she was improvising like crazy, and maybe she went a little too far. So it was kind of a balance. Her character is a lot of Bob and a lot of Margot. And 
getting away with everything that they did in Black Christmas back then, according to Margot, was a piece of cake compared to how it would be now, which I do think is something we should think about, that the content of this movie seeming so ahead of its time, maybe it is even to this day, because you know we're a lot more uptight now than we were in, in the 70s. And she, she pointed out, and I agree with her, that the humor and horror combo is what make this movie so special. John, I just want to point out that Andrea Martin was nominated for five <laughs> Tony Awards for Best Featured Actress in a Musical more than any other actress in history. Be, be, that, be that as it may, Vic, I don't want to overlook the fact that this is Margaret Kidder's third appearance on the podcast. Um, oh, having yeah. been featured prominently in the Amityville Horror and, of course, Rob Zombie's Halloween too. You're damn right. I mean, John Saxon kind of is putting her to shame, but uh, but Margot's she's up there, man. Also, kudos for getting hung over on pot. <laughs> you got to try hard to do that. I, I've I've kind of been there, you know. Yeah, like I'm when pretty you're sure, pretty sure I've done it. Yeah, your brain is racing, and <laughs> all right. I had one more observation I wanted to throw out about Barb's death scene. While the kids caroling cover her cries when she's getting murdered by Billy, she never gets out much of a scream either. Nothing shrill or loud. She's just making these kind of deep, guttural, bellowing groans that nobody was really going to hear anyway. And I'm not totally, you know, I'm not calling bullshit on it or anything. I'm not saying it's implausible but you know it's not like she was just going you know full scream queen here that that the carolers would need that need to be there to cover up her her cries it's kind of weird like maybe they're thinking somehow he's stabbing her in the solar plexus or the lungs or something that would impact that but i i kind of thought that was a bit of a cheat She's, she's asthmatic, John. I'm gonna I'm gonna add the asthmatic to the Norwegians and Scandinavians on the list of people that you just hate for no good reason. <laughs> she was having an asthma attack while she was being attacked by a serial I mean, killer. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like, I feel like that's exactly the getting stabbed with a unicorn statue is exactly the kind of thing. That would trigger an asthma attack. <laughs> Somebody said, like, I don't remember which one of these cast members or people involved, but that the horn on that, uh, maybe it was Margot, but the horn on that statue was, like, absurdly long. Like, it was not anatomically correct for a unicorn. We should all, we all know that. It was at least double the size of the average unicorn horn. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows that. <laughs> Thus, uh, doubly phallic and, and doubly lethal. Uh, before we move on, Rich, do you have anything you want to put in there? <laughs> I know. I'm just going to add into the unicorn. That it's interesting that the unicorn is really the uh, is the lasting icon of this film. I believe it's the only thing that like shows up in the two remakes that really like kind of like attempts to perhaps the attic, I guess, um, mm. that really attempts to sort of like tie these things together in any sort of like you know, 
in any sort of like gesture itself. But the, yeah, the unicorn keeps popping up. That's really notable because like we were noticing with the haunted house movies, like the, of all things that you're like, as a filmmaker, well, we got to have that in there. Right. Like, so as disparate as those two black Christmas remakes are, that means that there were two sets of writers, producers, directors, etc., studio people who are like, well, you can't make the movie without the crystal unicorn, without the glass unicorn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which has no Christmas association whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> John, I just want to point out that when, you know, it really matters where you're measuring the unicorn's horn from. <laughs> and is it cold out? Is, is the, exactly. Is it... <laughs> yeah, it's Christmas in Toronto. <laughs> You know, not all unicorn horns are the same all every time of the year. You're measuring from the base of the head. Anyway. <laughs> and the, you know, the thickness of the mane of, of the unicorn. <laughs> how, how big around is the horn? You know, like what's the girth of the unicorn horn? <laughs> all right, moving on. Uh, Billy, of course, we have to talk a little bit more about our killer. <laughs> From girth to Billy, yes, let's go. <laughs> a man who definitely fits the slasher movie paradigm of a an impotent killer. Uh, he has access to nubile young women, but he is not capable of uh, exerting any kind of uh, lustful desires. His his penetration is with the unicorn horn, which is again, one of the big tropes of, of these films, like actual rape is pretty uh, few and far between, but there's certainly a metaphorical uh, rape in the insertion of, you know, objects into people's bodies that they don't want to have inserted into them. So, it was important for Bob Clark to try to get away with never really showing the killer, which he didn't think had really been done up to this point. And the telephone calls helped make that possible because the killer was a presence even when he wasn't visible. And I want to point out that we talked, I talked a lot. I was kind of obsessed in our previous podcast with the idea of whether or not, like, should we even be thinking that Peter Kierdelea you know, could be Billy, could be the killer. And Bob Clark said, it could not have been Kier, and it never was. And he referenced some of the same things I did about where Kier was or wasn't at certain times. And of course, Billy's voice was a compilation of about uh, five actors' voices, none of which were Kier's. There's even what sounds to me like a squealing pig at some point, though apparently that is a person. Hussey said that, uh, and I think, uh, you know, we mentioned this last time, but the, the phone calls that we hear in the final film were not in the script. And what she heard on the other uh, end of the phone was just Bob Clark being threatening, but never as batshit nuts as what they added in in the looping process, which is where the Nick Mancuso performance and everything else really kind of was inserted into to Billy as a character. And in fact, the physical part of Billy was also a team effort. Uh, no one was cast as Billy. No one was cast as the killer, per se. Whenever they needed someone to be him, you know, the presence on screen or off camera, he was played by different people, including Clark at one point. And I think we touched on this last time, and I found an answer 
that crazy red eye thing. I think Rich was, was, was talking about it. It was a contact lens, which makes sense. And Nick Man- Mancuso said that uh, Billy just wants to be seen and understood which I take it means that his calls are literally his attempt to connect, to tell his story somehow. And to an extent, I, I, I get that. It's certainly provocative. It's worth giving it, giving it a think. Yeah. We see you, Billy. <laughs> we see you. So, um, Vic, do you, do you want to talk about Billy or should we talk about the composer? This movie is, is Billy's truth. You know, he's got his truth that he needs to get out. And <laughs> yes, so the composer Carl Zitterer, who we haven't named, but we've we've discussed uh, here and there along the way, and his techniques. I did want to drill down a little bit further into this. Uh, Rich correctly identified it as prepared piano, a la John Cage. He had an upright piano. Uh, this guy did, and he hung objects from the tuning pads. Somebody, that's what I think he said, the piano. But in any event, he had objects that were brushing against, touching the strings, forks, knives, combs. He said shrimp forks were his favorite thing. And then those sounds would be processed through reverb chambers, and he would run the music backwards and forwards, which was all in 1974, very challenging. It's something you could do very easily now, but uh, you know it was kind of pushing the envelope with the budget and the technology that they had at that time. But uh, I just want to reiterate that I absolutely love the score, and you know, if we're t- you know t- <laughs> keeping score, no pun intended, I-, I put this soundtrack like really high amongst, and, and you know our. Our final four, there's some really strong music here, absolutely, but this sort of weirdly experimental, almost non, certainly non-traditional, but almost like non-soundtrack soundtrack, non-musical soundtrack, it's one of the most like forward-thinking, progressive, and, and, and powerful aspects of the movie because this movie, if you it just had a traditional conventional score, I mean, it would just, it would feel like there's some things that feel dated and old school, old fashioned about the movie. But the fact that it doesn't have that kind of score, I think makes it a lot more timeless. Well, it's interesting you say that because it's like, yeah, obviously this is up against Halloween where it's like, you're talking about a movie that at the time was, not the advent of synthesizers for sure, but certainly the, the height of their like sort of uh, popularity in like pop music. And you had like Carpenter kind of like building on like themes of like Giorgio Moroder and stuff like that. Whereas this is like completely analog and is very much about the, the mechanical sounds that the instruments instruments can make and almost more of like a soundscape as opposed to, you know, really like melodic music. Um, obviously, like Carpenter's score has gone to have an incredible legacy and, and, and influence. But I agree with you. There's still something to this that is really like indelible and unique, and absolutely in like in no way generic um, at all. Even if it's not quite as like catchy. Right, catchy, no. Atonal, weird, jangling, yes. But 
but it only heightens the impact of scenes. Like I talked about that amazing sound that I, you know, just recurring motif that I knew when you heard that, Oh shit, somebody's about to die. You know, like the movie's not joking around when you hear that. Okay. Uh, we got to talk a little bit more about John Saxon. Uh, I think we were remiss to say, uh, to not say that his relationship with Giallo films is very, very significant. Maybe we touched on it in passing, but he's a pillar of this subgenre right from the start. He starred in Mario Bava's 1963 film, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which I haven't seen, but it's widely acknowledged as the first Giallo film. So uh, within a year of making Enter the Dragon, Saxon was a last-minute record, uh, last-minute replacement in this film for Oscar winner Edmund O'Brien, who was uh, unfortunately really frail and disoriented due to Alzheimer's when he arrived in Toronto to play the Lieutenant Fuller character. It was a frigid Toronto winter. Even if he could say the lines, like there was just a lot of concern about his safety and ability to to perform this task. So Saxon jumped on the opportunity. He'd already read the script and he showed up like (laughs) at one or two in the morning and went right on to the big park scene with all the extras searching for the missing teenager. And they're shooting this at 2 a.m. in a freezing winter night. That was quite a introduction to the movie. Everyone loved working with him, apparently, which I think is cool. And years later, he had a few things to say, which I, which I, I wanted to note. He called the film's antagonist a malevolent entity like Dracula or the Mummy, but not a supernatural one. To quote him, he said, an expression of humanity that is tormented and capable of horrific things. He also said that he appreciated the way that the film treated him as a leading man, right down to the way he was shot, and I agree with that. But he noted that his heroism is undermined by the colossal mistake that Lieutenant Fuller makes in the end. Yes, he is not an effective hero. He falls for the fallacious, but not fellatio-ish notion that Peter is the killer, as does Jess. And it clearly cost her her life, even if you don't consider the fact that there was an audio mix that wasn't used, but that had Billy's crazed giggling much more audible in that awesome final pan through the rooms, including Claire's packed suitcase in her room and on up to the attic. They did intend to shoot a death scene for Jess, but then they never did. It seems clear when you add up all of this evidence, I don't know how in doubt it was, but it seems clear to me that uh, Jess doesn't make it to the sequel. (laughs) But what is interesting is like, I was looking on Wikipedia. I normally looked at this, but I guess uh, because Rich did the intro, like the critical response, I, I just have to read some of these fucking reviews. I'm just blown away by this. Gene Siskel, you know, Gene Siskel, have we ever met a bigger enemy of horror than Gene Siskel. <laughs> I mean, I, I was Janet fond of him. Maslin might be a close, <laughs> yeah, close second. That's but. true. That's true. But I mean, at least whoever writes these Wikipedia things, man, it's always Gene Siskel railing against the movie. I mean, Janet Maslin pops up, but no doubt. 
but he, 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 he called the movie notable only for indicating the kind of junk roles that talented actresses are forced to play in the movies, which I, I totally disagree with. And then Kevin Thomas of the Los Angeles Times, somebody that I definitely didn't equate with the, the more knee-jerk and reactionary critics in history, he wrote, before it maddeningly, maddeningly overreaches in a gratuitously evasive ending. What the fuck? Anyway, he says, Black Christmas is a smart, stylish, Canadian-made little horror movie that is completely diverting. It may well be that its makers simply couldn't figure out how to end it. Wow, that was his takeaway from the ending of this movie? I just, I just, my mind's blown. Yeah, I find that astonishing. The ending is, is truly one of the strongest points of this movie. I think it's interesting that there is a sense of, like, context here of, like, just in terms of being, like, immersed in, like, film culture at the time is that, you know, you mentioned the, the Siskel review where he, he also referred to it as, like, a, a routine shocker, which I think, like, our take on it was more that it was, that it's kind of, like, ahead of its time, you know, and I think that, like, at the time, I think you were probably getting uh, a fair amount of woman threatened in a house by collar, like, sort of, like, thrillers. And so it's, like, in, in a sense, like, this the, this thing did not fully emerge, like, out of the ether. Like, it still had a, you know, a, a, a precedent that I think that maybe we're, like, less familiar with, you know, from what were sort of, like, low-rent thrillers, Um of that era. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Like the perspective at the time is that this thing was just kind of like part of its, its ilk. Um, whereas like to us, it feels exceptional. Kind of blows my mind. I mean, I know the urban legend existed and that was widely known, but it just seems like a, a knee jerk reflexive reaction that is i'm not going to take this seriously i'm not going to try to engage with it on its own terms i'm simply going to dismiss it as trash because of what it what its genre is and it, it even we all know that horror is a disreputable genre and film critics in the 70s were probably you know just looking for the next easy writer or something and, and something like this a, a genre picture they're they're not going to even attempt to see what might be special about it. That that's my only conclusion when I read stuff like that. But it it is kind of mind blowing, and obviously most critics, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, it's Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes scores and all of that have have gone up very dramatically over the years. But um, yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about how what the how the culture saw this movie and how dismissive it was when it really seems like a pretty classy and bob clark wanted to to not depict stupid teenagers like he kept saying in interviews and stuff he didn't want the beach blanket bingo teenagers he wanted to show astute as he put it teenagers who were thoughtful and smart and resourceful and living lives that were very much not dissimilar to adults or people a few years 
older and you just weren't seeing that in movies. And I think some of his loftier ambitions were all realized in this film, but not appreciated by many. Well, and I think the, the, because the formula of slasher films became so established and followed. Now, granted that wasn't quite the case when this came out, but clearly, you know, Siskel's talking about the fact that, you know, movies like this had been being made, and we've talked about Psycho, and we've talked about Peeping Tom. Those are the really, really good ones. I'm sure there's lots of really, really bad ones in between the, you know, those films and this one. But, like, this subgenre in particular seems critically reviled. And so I think to to identify a good slasher film, you really do almost have to ignore the critics, or especially the critics of the time. Yeah. I mean, you think about you think about Scream just as as the antithesis of it. Scream is something that critics sort of went apeshit for when it came out, and now we look back on it and are like, eh, it's okay. You know, if you're lucky. I mean, you don't think that, John, but other people do. Not me. <laughs> yeah, Rich, you either. But, you know, other people. Somebody, somewhere. Know your crowd, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Read the room. I'm just, I, I'm just saying that I, the, the even more so than the Haunted House films, I feel like the critical reaction to uh, slasher films almost needs to be cast aside. Yeah, it is. It was so reactionary and so determined by the just the volume of films that were coming out. Like, I don't even honestly, I don't even judge the critics. Like, if you had to watch all that, having watched 64 of these movies, if you showed me the 65th and it was The Intruder, I would be like, fuck this movie. Fuck these people. This is fucking stupid. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's to have just been subjected to this over and over and over again for 10 years would be brutal. And so it's only with the value of hindsight that we're able to look back on it and go, oh, no, wait, shit. I mean, that's this is what happened to Alfred Hitchcock, right? Like, everyone dismissed Hitchcock initially. And it was only in retrospect, and especially with European critics, that people looked back and went, Oh, wait, he was an exceptional filmmaker. And so I think part of it is in the moment people looked at looked at it as, you know, just just exploitative genre filmmaking. And only in retrospect, do we look back on it and go, oh, no, wait, this had not just this big cultural impact, but it was exceptionally well made for the time. And like, yeah, it sort of sucks that they didn't, you know critics should do a better job of seeing that at the time, but I kind of don't blame them. Um, but again, when we talk about these films, I think you sort of have to put at least the initial reviews aside and just look at it through our lens now because they, this movie fucking shines, man. It's great. Well, that's a good, uh, somewhat like a closing note, rich, anything else you, you want to throw out there? <laughs> I want to call out one other review that Variety 
talked about this film is, is exploiting unnecessarily unnecessary violence in a university sorority house operated by an implausibly alcoholic ex-hoofer. One, I don't know what a hoofer is. Two, implausibly alcoholic? I think you don't know enough alcoholics. Take that variety. What, what is a hoofer? I mean, I thought I knew all varieties' little terms, but I don't know that one. Uh, the movie did not... Was it supposed to be heifer? No, I, I think ex dancer would would make sense actually. A professional dancer, but I didn't. Too. Well, Rich had her as uh, a top recording star of Canada. Yeah, that was that was, that was Vic that uncovered that. Oh, oh, that was Vic. Okay, that's right. Credit where credits due, baby. Uh, credit for being completely wrong. Fuck you. Because. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I gave you a shred of credence last time because I wasn't actively going through the uh, the IMDb. But no, the woman that played Mrs. Mack was not a, a famous recording artist. I'm sorry. No, I think it's the the woman that the it's that the record that is in the attic by Billy's phone is a record by Mrs. Mack. Yes. Thank you, Rich. But that's not... So it's a fictional... It's a fictional... It's not that she's a famous... Recruiter. Wait, you're saying you're saying that they've printed that? Those aren't... Like, that wasn't a real album? Like, they just made that as a joke? Yes. I don't think so. Because I... I don't remember the name of the artist or artists, but I'm pretty sure they were real. Like, couldn't we determine that? Oh, God. John, are you going to make me do this now? This is like the least interesting. Well, the whole, the, the, the whole fraudulent point that you were, you were made had, has to be exposed. It has to be. Okay, so look, yeah, fraudulent. I feel like Vic had a pretty compelling explanation last time. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be on part two of the, the uh, deep dive and you can all go back and listen to it and make up your minds because I'm not going <laughs> to dial it up now. <laughs> But like you said, it was the, you know, it was like the, not the Andrews sisters, but it was something like that. And that can't be a pot that can't possibly be real. So it must've been, and it looked like Mrs. Mack. I mean, was that, am I misrepresenting your argument or is that? Yes. Yes. You're misrepresenting (laughs) my argument. And it's, it's literally the least important thing. According to the, according to the black Christmas fandom wiki, uh, Mrs. Mack is in fact introduced as a former vaudeville star turned alcoholic. <sighs> Suck it, John. <laughs> introduced as an alcoholic. A former yeah. hoofer? <laughs> a former hoofer, apparently. <laughs> but sure, okay. Now that I'd buy. Uh, for, uh, if, you're, if you're a vaudeville star, you're a hoofer. That I accept. Yeah. But they they mocked up a fake album to show... Like as they pan over her room or I something. I like that, that. That's that's the that's the line that's like too far for you to accept. In 1974, for six hundred thousand dollars, I don't know. I don't know. You know what bothers me? I've been. I'm. I'm glad that we're going so deep into this. That that Mrs. Mack doesn't have a K at the end of her name. Have you ever known anyone whose last name was M A C? 
My brother-in-law, who is arriving tomorrow, is Mac M-A-C. So it's not his last name, but no, a first name well, is not the not the issue. A last name. John, well, John, please, if you had bothered to visit the Black Christmas fandom wiki, you'd know that her name is Mrs. Mac in quotes. Mac Henry. Mac is just a nickname. Oh, because of the Mac Henry sisters. That's what it was. The Mac Henry yeah. sisters. But doesn't I, I'm pretty sure the McHenry sisters are real. That was what I'm talking about. That's that's what threw me. John, you're you're just embarrassing yourself. <laughs> just <Yeah. me. laughs> I'm pretty sure that this is a this is a story that you fabricated all live on the podcast before Vic found the actual answer. <laughs> I I hate to say this that I just Googled it and oh Mick Henry. That okay, wait. No, no, that doesn't help. All right. Um, all, all the, all the results are, are black Christmas. Um, so, but doesn't it sound like a real, real duo of songbirds? All right. I will, I will retreat, uh, with my tail tucked between my legs at this point. (laughs) (laughs) John, I I love you. And and I'm sorry that your, your tail's between your legs. I was totally, you could have bet me a hundred dollars that the McHenry sisters were like big in Canada in the early or mid seventies. And I would have, I would have said absolutely. And if anyone who tells you otherwise, uh, they're a liar. Uh, yeah. So fuck, I could have won a hundred dollars. You could have, you absolutely could have. So one last little crazy tidbit that I just feel like we should mention because of the relationship between Halloween and black Christmas Lynn Griffin, Claire, uh, in Black Christmas, who's one of the most vocal uh, and enthusiastic people to uh, talk about Black Christmas over the years. Uh, She may have been too young to be in the movie, and she is friends with Nancy Loomis of Halloween fame, Annie from Halloween. And why is that? Because Lynn Griffin brought... Lynn Griffin bought the home in Los Angeles that John Carpenter and Adrian Barbeau had owned. And she said, I, she says, I lived in the Halloween house on Wonderland, Wonderland Avenue. And somehow that made her put, brought her in contact with Nancy Loomis. So there's your six degrees of separation. Wow. And I think that's the appropriately momentous note to end on after we debated whether Mrs. Mack was a real singer or not for five minutes. I'm still researching it. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. All right, Vic, uh, what's your, what's your final, uh, you know, drop, drop the hammer on this. What's the verdict on this movie? I think that my reaction to this film in the context of this competition really does center on the fact that this movie pulls together an enormous number of threads that were happening both in the real world and cinematically, that it's it's grabbing stuff from Halloween, it's grabbing stuff from Peeping Tom, it's grabbing stuff from Dario Argento, it's grabbing stuff from serial killers in real life. And it puts all of that together into this brew that just works. 
And it's kind of astonishing. I mean, I, I, I will still say that this film is a, is a, a dark horse in this competition. But without this film, none of the other films except for Texas Chainsaw are exist. None of them are here. And so that gives it a, 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 a real sense of importance that merits the eight hours of discussion that we have devoted to it. Well, I've enjoyed that eight hours of discussion. Uh, Rich, maybe not so much. Anything else you want to say, Rich, or are you just eager to, to put this one behind you? I definitely wouldn't say that I want to put this movie behind me. I see a future for this film in my life. And like, I'm, I'm happy that like I, I finally got to watch it um, as a result of this examination that we're doing into the subgenre. Like, I, I plan on revisiting this film over and over again. And I'm not even saying that I'd, I'd rule this film out of you know, potentially beating something else in our, in our top four. I'm not saying it's, it, it can't happen. Um, I think it's like revisiting the film repeatedly, uh, in a, like a, a relatively short period of time, you know, revealed some of its flaws and, and, and pacing, which is something that gets corrected as the, as the formula gets honed in these later films that I think we'll also go on to talk about with Friday 13th part two and Halloween in particular. But, I mean, I, I agree. I don't, I don't think this thing necessarily like completely broke the mold, but I think it, it certainly has started to establish a formula. And more importantly, it's just very lovingly rendered. And that's something about the, you know, we've talked about the, the, the relevance of, of, of Christmas to, the, to this film, but I'd say that there is something that is, especially evokes like the, the sort of like filmmaker uh, quality of it. And that like, you can feel that the, the characters are lovingly crafted and the, the visuals are very thoughtful. And the point of view of Billy, Billy is very like articulated as, as obscured as he is like this film is definitely the work of someone with vision and a voice and i feel like that comes through very clearly and like i think that you know whether you're attributing that to to a roy moore's script or whether you're talking about bob clark um although i attribute to bob clark in particular and the cast like i feel like it has real indelible personality and that's the thing that's going to stick with me um and bring me back to it again and again yeah, I mean, what? one of the things we always talk about is lightning in a bottle. I, I think this is one of those movies that captured that. What I just heard was that Rich is waiting for his kids to be old enough so that, like Elvis, he can make this a Christmas tradition. <laughs> it will be in my house. Yeah. Just to be clear, just to be clear, Vic, a Thanksgiving tradition after Thanksgiving dinner, after Blood Rage. Yeah, Blood Rage, <laughs> then this. Christmas Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been a pleasure, guys. I've really enjoyed this whole deep dive that we've been on and uh I think we've I think we've covered most of it, but honestly, I think, you know, if I if I took another another couple of nights sifting through the the resources available and the thoughts and the opinions and 
I, I kept thinking about it. I, I'm sure I could talk about it for another hour. And I, I think that that's the, the mark of a, of a special film. So I'll leave it there. And uh, to the audience, thank you so much for, for listening. And what your mother and I must know is... <laughs> Have you rated and reviewed the March Mad Men podcast? <laughs> if you got something out of our dissection of Black Christmas, let the world know. We're not going to keep doing this forever if no one appreciates it. Feel free to hit me up on Twitter at John F underscore Evans and share your thoughts on the movie. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, y'all, adios. Adios.